Well, those of us who are left, we're in the second week of this series, Chasing Carrots, and we are talking about the fact that many of us are letting our lives be motivated by things because we think they will bring us happiness and contentment and peace and security and joy and all the things that we all really want for our lives. But what if the things that most of us are letting drive our lives forward are things that can't deliver on those promises of happiness and contentment and security and joy. Uh, last week we talked about money and stuff because one of the most common beliefs that so many of us have, whether we admit it or not, is that we think that if we just had a little bit more, our life would be better. You know, we, we would have more margin in the budget, we would have more ability to pay our bills on time, we could have a nicer standard of living, um, or whatever, you know. Like Disney Plus came out this weekend, or this past week. How many of you signed up for Disney Plus? Yeah, a few of you, right? Um, some of us, I, had, I, I decided to cancel all my Hulu subscriptions so that we had more room in the budget for Disney Plus. And so, you know, if I had a little bit more money, I could just have both. You know, like we, there's things like that that we think I wouldn't have to make trades anymore. I could just take all the things in if I had more room in my life. And so we think, you know, if we just had a little bit more, we could get a little nicer car, a little bit nicer wardrobe, a little more, you know, whatever in our lives and and yet as we chase more and more and more what a lot of people discover is that there is no magic number that when you get that level of income or that level of whatever there's no magic dollar amount out there that finally brings you peace and contentment and joy and security money is a carrot and you can't get what you want to out of it in fact the way we defined a carrot last week is carrots are things that motivate but don't pay off there are things that we use to drive our lives. Yes, if I just have a little bit more of that, if I can just get that carrot, everything will be fine. But the problem is the carrot dangles out in front of us and we chase it, but we never really get there. We never really get what we think we're going to get out of the carrot. And so we need to stop chasing these things and find better stuff to serve as the driving forces of our lives. Now today I want to talk about another one that is just as important, perfection. Now, some of you, I get it, some of you are not going to relate to this, but some of you are going to very, very relate to this, because some of you are perfectionists, and, and you feel every day this pressure to be perfect, to do things perfectly, and when you take on a job or a responsibility or somebody gives you a task, you think, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. There is no, like, kind to do it. There's no, like, maybe I'll help a little. It's you're going to do it, and you're going to do it right, because that's the way things should be done, and a lot of people in our society are pressured to live a certain way, act a certain way, do certain things, but when it comes to perfectionism, there is no one in the world that I feel worse for than moms. Nobody has more pressure on them to be perfect than moms. As a dad, very little societal pressure on me. <laughs> Society expects embarrassingly little of dads. If I just show up, I'm a hero. That's pretty much it. Um, I love it when, you know, when Abby, will, she'll go out and do things, or sometimes she works at the library filling in still, so she'll go and I'll have the kids for a day. And people will say things like, isn't that great of him to babysit his children? They're mine. That's not babysitting. That's parenting. Like feeding them, bathing them, all that. That's just being a dad, right? And yet people are like, good for him. What 
what a great husband he must be. It's like, because I, sh- I was there? Like, that's really the bar that we're setting for dads? A few years ago, I think it was, I can't remember which kid it was. James, I think, was in preschool. And I went, and for one day, which was like two and a half hours, I helped out with the preschool that day, the preschool class. And I just, I was there. I pushed kids on the swings. I helped them hand out papers. And the teachers were like, we've never, ever once had a dad come in in all the years that we've been here. They looked at me like I was Superman. I was like, I, did, I colored and pushed kids on the swing. Again, I just showed up, and I'm a hero. Dads, nobody expects anything from dads. But man, those poor moms, all you have to do as a mom is have a spotless home that looks like no children actually live in your house. you got to have an endless supply of cute outfits and ways to style your hair. You have to take kids to the zoo, to the pumpkin patch, have crafts and activities for them to do when they get home. You have to throw elaborately themed birthday parties where everyone gets a treat bag on the way out the door. You got to work out five times a week so you look like you never had kids in the first place. On top of all that, it's better if you contribute to the household income and have a career. And yet somehow while having a career, you're also supposed to be home with your kids. And while having a career, you have to find time to get out of work to be at every room party, you have to be, go to every, every field trip, you got to be a chaperone for all those, all those things, and on top of all that, while all this stuff is going on in your life, you have to be a professional iPhone photographer so that you can capture these beautiful moments of you being the perfect parent and put them all over social media so that people can see how great you are, and, and if you, by chance, need a break from all this, you're also supposed to have a, a thriving hobby preferably one that brings in, again, a little extra income, if you can do something like that on the side. And then you got the laundry to do, the baths to give, the stories to read, the homework to help with. you got to prep and and plan and prepare and clean up all the meals, and they better be five-star meals that not even the pickiest kid would ever complain about. And, you know, that's it. (laughs) And, And I showed up. So bow before my awe, my greatness as a dad, right? It's like, like it's, there's this ridiculous standard of perfection that mo- so many moms feel, and it's unreasonable, it's ridiculous, and sometimes you just feel crushed under the weight of it because most days you're like, I was busy all day, and I can't name one thing I actually got done. And you get to that point where you throw some tablets and some phones at your kids, you go lock yourself in the bathroom and inhale a sleeve of Thin Mints, just so that you can have a moment, and even that moment's probably not a moment because there's fingers coming under the door because they smell it. They know it's there. They know you had something hidden and that you're enjoying yourself, and they can't stand for that. And so, you know, there's these ridiculous amounts of, of pressure and perfection, and it's not just a mom thing, obviously. It's an everyone thing. At some point, most of us are going to feel this pressure to live up to a certain standard in some arena of life. And it's often an impossible standard that we're reaching towards. That's why we call it perfectionism, because it means no flaws, missed nothing, messed up nothing. It's absolute, perfect, and pristine. And that pressure, again, is crippling so often for so many people. Uh, I did a little research and found that you can actually separate perfectionism into like three different categories. There's different ways to slice it up depending on who you're looking at and articles you read. But for the most part, it's generally agreed upon that there's these three categories. The first one is self-oriented perfectionism. This is when you hold yourself to an impossible standard. You are putting the weight of the world on your own shoulders. And people who have this 
self-imposed, like I've got to do this, I've got to do these things, I've got I to be this certain level of achievement at my work, I've got to get these kind of grades in school or whatever the place is that you're holding the standard over yourself, they usually feel guilty or inadequate because even though they're putting this standard out there, they just can't ever quite, quite get there. You know, they can't ever quite live up to their own standard. And, and sometimes people who have this self-oriented perfectionism, even though, again, they want to be perfect, they will obsess about things to the point where they're actually m- more inefficient with their life and they get less done because they're focusing on something to, to get it just like this much better when it's good enough, it's fine, the project is done, whatever it is, but it's got to be perfect and working on details no one else would notice to the point where they're, they're slowing themselves down and they're becoming more inefficient, less perfect. The second one is called socially perceived perfectionism. This is when you perceive that people around you have expectations of you. You think your family, your workplace, your friends, and sometimes your, just society in general have these expectations for your behavior and for your performance that if you don't meet those standards, you're going to be rejected or disliked. Now, what's weird about this one is even though we perceive that these, this pressure is coming from everyone else out there, most of the time this is also self-inflicted. It's us making up these standards that no one's really told us exist, but we are putting them on ourselves. And and these can lead to feelings of loneliness and isolation because you will read rejection into any weird social interaction. You're like, they didn't like me because I didn't do this right. They don't like me because I said a certain thing or because I didn't do good at work. That's why my boss walked by me and didn't shake my hand. Or You'll read rejection into so many situations because you think that you aren't living up to other people's standards. And then... There's others-oriented perfectionism. This is when you put your impossible standard on the people in your life. They have to live up to what you want, what you think. They have to perform to your certain level. Um, What's painful uh, is that it's mostly a person really close to you that does this. Uh, Some of you had parents like this, or if you're younger, maybe you have parents like this. And nothing nothing you did ever felt good enough. You've done You've done everything you could to be better at school, to be good at athletics, to get a job when you were younger and perform. You went, tried to get into the right college so that maybe mom would get off your back and think that you could be successful. But your parents always seemed to be unimpressed or criticize everything you did, hoping that you could do a little bit better. And it, for you, it just felt like, man, why can't they be happy? Why can't they be pleased? Why, can't, why is anything I do not good enough for them? And people who suffer from others-oriented perfectionism can be harsh and critical and lack compassion. They might think they're being more loving by pushing people to be their best, but it does not often come off that way. And so many consider perfectionism a psychological issue. But like anything, because I think everything's connected in our human lives, I actually think it's a deeper issue than that. I think it's a spiritual issue. And it starts with this thing that I think is in all of us, We tend to be overconfident with what humans can accomplish. I mean, it's not too terribly hard to to see how we do this. Uh, You can watch little inspirational montages around New Year's or around the 4th of July that will list out all of the great accomplishments of humanity, from great works of art, from monuments carved into the side of mountains that are impressive to, you know, Neil Armstrong's foot going down on the moon, and it'll be like, there's no limit to what humans can achieve. I know you, you get this kind of nonsense in, like, college recruitment videos. 
You know, they'll show like Neil Armstrong's foot going on on the moon, like you're going to be the next person if you can go to that college kind of thing. And so we do have this kind of thing that just says there's no limit to what humans can do. We can do anything. There is no limit to our level of accomplishments, no limit to what we can conquer and achieve. And, and what happens is we think we can do anything and that perfection is attainable, that there should actually be, if we work hard enough and try hard enough, that we should be able to a- accomplish that perfection. And, in fact, this tendency to think humans can do anything is one of the things I think helps separate, very clearly, man-made religions from what I think is a true religion, what is not of God, from what is of God. Because when you look at every single world religion, pretty much, they're all a variation of the same. You work your way to heaven. You climb that ladder of salvation. You Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You accomplish whatever it might be that's out there. Whatever salvation is, whether it's nirvana or or oneness with the universe, enlightenment, whatever that goal is, it's, it's humanity's job. It's your job to get there. Almost every world religion teaches this, that it's up to the humans to show off what they can do for God or whatever deity or not deity is out there. Except for one, Christianity. In fact, Christianity is the opposite. It's not us working our way to God. It's God coming down to us on a rescue mission. And and that is what separates us, Christianity, from every other major world religion. And I'm telling you, you add them all up, they're all a variation of the same thing, a different formula on, on the same stuff. It is all humanity's working ability to work their way to salvation. And though our faith might be different and is meant to be different. The Christian faith is meant to be different. That desire to think, man, we humans should be able to do better, that kind of tends to overcome. And we'll even turn this stuff, rather than worshiping God, we'll turn it into us jumping through the right hoops, checking the right boxes, and doing the right things so that we are good enough for our salvation. And we're not the first ones to do that. And if you go back to the first century, which is when the New Testament was written, the people that Jesus was talking to, the people that a lot, uh, the Apostle Paul, Peter, all these other guys that were Jesus, like leaders in the church, the people they were talking to really, really struggled with this idea. That they, they, they kept kind of trying to come back to make it about rules and, follow, and, and jumping through all the rules and doing all the rules. That's how you please God. Um, and one of the reasons was because when you looked at the Old Testament, there are a whole lot of rules in the Old Testament, and that's what they had. They didn't have the New Testament in the first century because this stuff was still being written, still being formulated then. And so you had all these people working with the laws of God from the Old Testament, and there's a lot of them, 600-plus laws in the Old Testament. And then the, the, the Jewish priest came along and said, I think, you know what we need? We need more laws. And they came in and added more laws to these 600 that God already had in the Old Testament. And when you look at the, the way the laws were and this tendency that we have to say it's up to humans to please God, it's up to us to work our way to heaven, when you t- look at that tendency plus what we have in the Old Testament, these people kind of missed the point and they thought that following God was all about the rules. It was all about following the laws. And the thing about these laws that are in the Old Testament and that the priests made up was that they weren't just what we would consider religious things. I mean, they, they permeated every area of your life, like how you handled food in your kitchen. They were inescapable. They, I mean, you couldn't go through a moment of the day without thinking about whether or not there were these rules that you were breaking. And so in the first century, you had these 
entire groups of people who were obsessed with following the rules in order to please God. They were obsessed with making sure that they were doing everything just right. Otherwise, God might not like them, that they might displease God, and God might send them to hell. And then you had all the very good religious people who felt like they did all the things right, who liked to look around and say, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, not enough, you're doing everything bad, how dare you? And they like to tell everybody else how they were breaking the rules. And so you have every facet of this situation looks like perfectionism to me. I got to make all the rules. Oh, no, there's a standard out there that if I don't fulfill it, I'm not going to be on God's good side. And then the Apostle Paul comes along and he sees all these people that are obsessed with the rules. And he tries to explain why being perfect is a foolish errand for us. In the book of Romans, so he, write, he writes a, a letter, we call it a book, he wrote it to a church in Rome. The church in Rome was a mixture of the Jewish people. I'm going to need a little help. My remote stopped working on me. Maybe. Weird. It just worked. just did it. Oh, well. Technology is great. And so he's writing this letter to the church in Rome, which was a, mix, a mixture of these Jewish people who had all the rules and Gentile people who didn't have the rules, who were wondering why these Jewish people were so obsessed with the rules and trying to make sense of this perfectionism that they were holding themselves to. And so Paul says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that those who are under the law, or so that every mouth, excuse me, may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For the works of the law, no human being, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Basically, he's saying that if you are going to depend on you being perfect, you're not going to get there. That the law is not able to be fulfilled by you or by me. The main purpose of the law, which everybody seemed to have missed, was, was to show us how bad we are, how imperfect we are. Which, if you're a perfectionist, that's like the worst news in the world. Because you don't want to be imperfect. That's your greatest fear, is somebody calling you out on being imperfect. Somebody highlighting your failures. You're probably terrible at getting criticism. It either breaks your heart and you want to go home and cry, or you want to put on your boxing gloves and fight back to the person who told you, told you, you know, some constructive criticism. You want to tell them why they did wrong, why, why you're right, why you are perfect. Okay? And so this perfectionism, he says, no, this is nonsense. You're never going to be perfect. No one's ever going to be perfect. In fact, the reason God gave all these rules and laws and these thorough standards of behavior is so that every day we would remember that we are not perfect. And if salvation is dependent on us, that that's not the way to go. And so these people were supposed to be reminded that they can't achieve this. I mean, because every day, again, it, it goes into how you make your food. You could accidentally break the law. There were so many ways they could break the law. Every day they were supposed to wake up and go, oh, I didn't do that one. Oh, hope God forgives me for this. Oh, man, I messed up again. It was supposed to be this constant reminder and something that points forward, saying, well, if God has this standard of perfection, surely someone out there is supposed to be perfect. And even though we're we're supposed to be people who are not obsessed with the rules, obsessed with the law, but we're, we're, we're supposed to be past that to a certain extent as Christians. We turn this, what we do, not into worshiping God, but into how are we checking off the rules? Because we, we make up our own little rules, like, hey, uh, how many times a week did you come to church? How many times a month did you come to church? 
ooh, that's not enough. You better come to church or God's going to be mad. You're not in the building. You know, you don't get counted. Did you pray? Doesn't matter. You didn't come to church. Did your kid run in church? You're a bad parent. Jesus is mad at you because you let your kid run in church. Oh, boy. Did your kid climb over the pew? Well, they're going to hell. Don't even worry about teaching them about Jesus. They climbed over a pew. Oh, my goodness. And we make all these rules. How many times a day did you pray? Did you not read your Bible today? Oh, my gosh, you didn't read your Bible today? Oh, that's the worst thing. You, everyone, I mean, we make up all these rules about being a Christian means you got to do this, and you got to do that, and you got to do that. And we kind of try to bring ourselves back to this old way of doing things, which Jesus actually came to free us from. and Because we can't be perfect. And, and again, I'm going to give you some really bad news, especially if you are a perfectionist at heart, and it's that you will never be perfect. You won't. You can't do it. Nobody in the, nobody who has ever lived has been able to, to meet the standards of God, of anybody else. You will never be perfect, not in morality, not in wisdom, not in skill, not in knowledge and information, not in achievement. Every one of us has messed up. There is no way that we will ever be perfect. It is an impossible goal for every single human being. This is why, more often than not, the people who are perfectionists end up despairing, they end up upset. They end up feeling like failures. And even when they do have a success, that feeling is short-lived because there's something else out there that they've got to be perfect at the next thing, and it starts all over again. It is an inadequate system to live by. It's a carrot. Perfectionism is a carrot. It promises if you can just do everything right, life will be good to you. Well, the problem is you're never going to be able to do everything right. So what do we do? If humans can never be perfect, that means our lives are always going to be a mess to a certain extent, which again, that's not perfect. And when you apply this truth of we're not perfect to the church world, we do get to that point where, oh man, we aren't going to be on God's good side if it all depends on us and how we do things. Because we're going to sin, we're going to mess up, we're going to do things we shouldn't do, we're going to do evil knowingly and willingly at times. There's just going to be these times where we fall way short of what God has called us to do. So what are we going to do? Because if we can't keep God's rules and we keep on sinning, doesn't that mean God's going to send us to hell? Isn't that bad news for us? Well, that's what makes Christianity so incredibly different and so much more, I think, beautiful and gracious and kind than so many of the other world religions. You know, I was listening to somebody who was talking about people who were Muslim and, and how Muslims, it's again, it's your ability to, to follow all the rules of, of Allah to, to get into heaven and and they said, how do you know when you've done enough? And said, oh, you never know if you've done enough. Your entire life should be lived hoping you've done enough, and you don't know until you die. That's a terrifying and exhausting way to live. And yet, Jesus wanted to free us from a life of fear and a life of effort and a life of striving to a standard that, honestly, we're never going to be able to achieve. That's why Paul goes on, and he says this in verse 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Meaning, the perfection of God is, has, has come apart from your ability and my ability to follow all the rules. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, that perfection, meaning they hinted that surely there's the standard here, surely somebody's supposed to be able to be perfect at some point, right? He says, yeah, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, who, or for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you're not perfect, you never will be. But 
The verse that nobody ever quotes, by the way. We all, a lot of pe- people will quote, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and forget the next verse, which is what makes Christianity beautiful, and are justified by his grace as a gift, though the, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, excuse me, put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So God knew that we weren't going to be perfect. He knew the standard was going to be impossible, and he wanted us to know and embrace our imperfection. That's, one of, that's part of, of basics of Christianity. Christianity 101 is I'm a mess and you're a mess. But see, we tend to take that as this personal message. Like, oh, I'm just a mess. But it feels a little bit better. And this is why we need the church when we look up and we're like, oh, we're all a mess. Okay, it's a little bit easier to swallow that pill when I'm not the only one swallowing it, right? When we're all a mess, that's okay. We can live with that a little bit more. And so we should stop trusting in ourselves, stop being overconfident in our ability to live up to God's impossible standard, and we instead lean on the fact that God gave us someone to be perfect, Jesus. He was perfect, fulfilled every law in the Old Testament, Perfectly, never disappointed the Father, never let him down. He fulfilled every single law for me and for you in our place so that we, because we couldn't, not so that we wouldn't have to, but because we couldn't. And then when he went to the cross, that meant since he was perfect, he had no sin. No sin to be punished for, no sin to, to, to you know, receive the wrath and anger of God. He was perfect. And so on the cross, what did he die for? Not his own sin. My sin and your sin. He took my record of wrongs and your record of wrongs, and he took that punishment so that we wouldn't have to. And it says Jesus was a propitiation. That's a fun, long Bible word. And it simply means an offering that turns away wrath, meaning Jesus offered himself so that we wouldn't be the recipients of God's anger toward our sin. He took that wrath. He took God's anger for our sin and our mistakes. That, that, that thing that we're scared of, while we've got to be perfect because there's consequences, oh no, Jesus took the consequences so that we wouldn't have to. And the way that we receive this gift of being freed from the consequences of sin, free and and to be saved, to receive heaven and eternal life with Jesus, is that we trust that what he did for us was enough. That his perfect life was enough. Even though I'm not perfect, he was perfect in my place. Even though I'm a sinner, Jesus died for my sin to pay that price and to take it all away. And this is why Jesus wanted to help us shift our minds away from, we've got to follow all the rules, to something more beautiful, to something more freeing. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Perfectionists don't know what that word means. They don't grant it to themselves. They think there's not a moment of rest to be had because if they rested, they're, fa- they're going to fail. But Jesus, come to me, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. A yoke, if you don't know this, it's that thing that they used to bind two ox, oxen together back in those days. You can do two horse, whatever. Buying these two animals together means to work side by side. Jesus says, come work side by side with me because I'm gentle and lowly of heart. I'm not a taskmaster like that voice, that perfectionist voice in your brain that says, get after it, do more. You gotta keep going. You can't stop for even a second. He says, I'm lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
This is Jesus speaking to a society obsessed with pursuing perfection. And he says, aren't you tired of this? Isn't that exhausting to you? Aren't, don't, don't you understand that, that, that you're never going to live up to your standard or anyone else's? Don't, aren't you just tired of feeling like you're never going to be enough? Well, if you are, come to me, because I'm the only one who's going to give you rest. I'm the only one who can provide you peace from the restlessness in your soul that tells you you aren't good enough. And putting our faith in Christ means admitting, for many of us, our greatest fear, that you'll never be perfect. But that's exactly why Jesus came, because we'll never be perfect. He came to be perfect on our behalf, so that we would no longer spend our lives focused on the rules and standards and fearing that we're never going to be good enough, but that we can finally rest in his amazing grace. And we should let this spiritual reality wash over every area of our lives, not just this idea of, okay, Jesus takes my sin. No, because if you're imperfect everywhere else, you still know that God loves you, that Jesus loved you enough to die for you. You you know that he found value, Jesus values your presence enough in eternity that he took death and a horrible beating in your place so that he could be with you forever. So even if you mess up at everything you ever do, even if you're far, a far cry from perfect, you're still loved, and you still have value, you still have meaning, you still have a place in this world, all because of God showing you that value in Jesus. And then he gave us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us to actually help us to be better, to give us supernatural power to improve day by day and be more like Jesus. And I only tell you that because some of you perfectionists are saying, well, surely there's something I can do to get better. Yeah, he gave you the Holy Spirit to help you day by day. So, yes, there is hope in Jesus. But by chasing perfection, I'm just going to tell you, if you're going to try to be perfect in any area of life, that's just going to be like trying to hit a hole-in-one in in a hurricane. You can swing all day long, but I bet the ball is not going to land where you want it. And you're always going to be disappointed. And if you blame yourself, you're never going to be satisfied. You're going to live under this impossible weight for the rest of your life when Jesus came to free you from that. Again, every other religion in the world, people live under this fear, this weight. Did I do enough? Have I given enough? Have I volunteered enough? Have I sacrificed enough? We're supposed to have a peace and a freedom in our souls that says, yeah, Jesus is enough for me. Whatever I failed to accomplish, Jesus did it for me. My life is forever in his hands. My life is forever in his debt. And I will follow him with my dying breath because everything I need is in Jesus. I don't need to do any more. It's all something he has done for me. And we rest in that truth because everything else is just a carrot. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this sometimes painful reality that we're not perfect and we're never going to be at least not on this side of heaven. And yes, we're works in progress, and yes, you help us move forward with our lives, and yes, you help us get better and pursue Christ-likeness and, 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 and walk more closely in light of who Jesus is. But, but yet, so often, Father, we are just going to fall short. And, and your love and your grace came through Christ so that we wouldn't spend our entire lives beating ourselves up living to this taskmaster voice in our head saying, go, do more, you're, you're not good enough yet, you, you're, not, you're not there yet, keep going, you're worthless, no one loves you, no one cares, because you're not good enough. That voice in our head is not meant to be the voice that drives our lives, the one that we listen to, and Jesus came to free us from that, so that we could have peace and joy 
and security because our salvation is firmly wrapped up in what Jesus has already done for us. And so we can walk confidently in every day, in every circumstance, not because we are good, but because you have been good to us. And so if we're going to have confidence in our life, let it not be in our own abilities. Let it not be in what we can do, but in what you have done already by sending your son in on our behalf. Let us wake up every day knowing that we can have you know, progress in life, not because of our strength or because of a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps attitude, but because we have the Holy Spirit giving us supernatural strength. And I pray that all of this, this truth that you know, we're not perfect, I pray that it would not drive us to despair, but it would, it would put us in a place of humility and a place of gratitude and awe for who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And sometimes I think we just are so caught up in our society's drive for more that we forget that in Christ we don't have to do anymore. That you have offered us salvation and all we have to do is believe and have faith and, 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 and follow Jesus. So help us. To, to just come back to the bare basics of our faith, the starting point of our faith, which is Jesus, and let us never forget that where we stand is on a hope in Him. It's so, it's so easy to forget in a world of self-help books and talk show hosts peddling the next big thing. It's easy to forget that we've already got the best big thing, and that's Christ and what He's done for us. Let us, as believers, never forget that and never lose sight of it, even for a minute. Because the, the, the consequences can be disastrous if we do. And we're going to lose track and we're going to walk on the wrong path. But let us always walk the path that leads in the direction of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.